for that. We also want to update you on um, our building. Um, we have had a fantastic uh, success uh, so far um, raising support um, for our building. If you don't know much about our church, we moved into this place about uh, two and a half years ago, and it has been uh, just extraordinary growth. We moved in with about 15, 20 people um, that attended the service, and it has just grown to what you see now, three services, and they're all um, kind of slam-packed full. Uh, so we have launched into a building campaign. Um, we are expecting, actually, tomorrow morning, um, tomorrow we're, gonna, we're planning on signing our lease with our landlord, and we have all of our bids and everything's kind of in the right place. Um, so as you're home for Christmas break, we want you to know that we're going to have probably submitted our plans by that point, um, and we're going to be rocking and rolling. So hopefully when you get back, we'll have construction going. Um, and pray that the city responds quickly, because um, as all you guys who have ever done any kind of construction things, um, know that they uh, are not always the most responsive, but you know, the city of Tallahassee is just a fantastic city, so we believe wholeheartedly in faith that they're going to respond in about five days. Um, so pray that that happens, but if it doesn't, pray at least it takes the normal 30 days. Um, so that being said, uh, I just want to kind of give you an update on where you are. So we're, we're very excited to announce kind of the next phase is, is beginning with the building project, and hopefully in not too long in the future, we'll have a brand new sanctuary. We can come, and you can invite friends, and you don't feel like you have to be crammed next to them like in a movie theater, and do I put my arm back or not, nah, because it's weird, I don't know this person, but I'm a little bit, you know, space-deprived. Anyway... Um, so we're starting a brand new series this morning, and it's called, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. Now, I've got to be honest and say, um, this was not one of my favorite Christmas carols uh, when I think about Christmas carols or when I was growing up. You know, I would like Oh, Holy Night um, just because it was Oh, Holy Night, and who doesn't like it? You know, the fall, you know, that, that part was from, um, and then I really like Silent Night. Um, because in Silent Night, as, when I was young, uh, I actually, like I said, I grew up like, like Parker. I grew up in an Episcopal church, um, and we had a little candle with a little, you know, the, the little paper thing around it, and everybody lit it, you know, and you sit there, and then everybody blew it out at the end. But we, me and my sister and I, would have a contest who could keep their hand candle lit the longest, not as like a reflection of I want to be the light for Christ. It's like this is church, and we get to do have fire. You know, this is the only exciting thing all year that we get to do. Um, but. The reason I think that I didn't like it is because the, the words are, you know, um, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And I thought, okay, yeah, let's come, let us adore him because he's a baby, and all babies are adore a bull, you know? And so it's like, now, now this, this might be kind of a, a, a port of dissension between you and I, but when I think of babies, um, I don't really think that they're adorable. I, I think my kid is adorable, so I'll, I'll put that out there. My, when I have, you know, when our, our daughter Ava, we've got a baby that's coming in about five or six weeks, a prayer request on that one as well. Um, but when we have kids, they are the most they're the cutest thing to ever hit um, God's green earth or any type of, of, of movement. Um, they are the cutest thing in the history of history. Um, but when you have a kid, it looks a lot like a sack of potatoes or just like a potato specifically. You know, it's a little bit scrunched and, and oh, it looks like her. It looks like him. It's like, it looks like an alien if we're being honest. It really doesn't look like anybody, but you got to say, oh my gosh, it's so cute. It's so adorable. And everybody says, yeah. So when I would think about this song, I would think, okay, in the same way, all the angels and the wise men would say, oh my gosh, the baby's born. He's so adorable. He's so cute. Let's go look at the cute baby and tickle him and hold him for a second while an overprotective mom makes sure we you know, put our Germex on to make sure we don't give him any kind of illness or sickness. But what reality is, is the Christmas story was specifically about this realization that there is a God who so loved the world that he sent his son 
that he saw the sin of the world, he saw the rebellion of the world. In fact, the backdrop to the Christmas story is extraordinarily powerful. Because in the backdrop of the Christmas story is this nation of Israel that had continued to be rebellious against God. There was this nation that had over and over had prophet come and say, you know, you ought to turn back to God. You ought to turn back to God. In fact, if you don't turn to God, there will be consequences for your lack of adoration and respect and worship and obedience to God. And they would consistently do what you and I do which is to know what we ought to do and not do it. And that know what we ought to do and not do it really kind of doesn't hone down on one specific religion because all of us inside of us, whether it was given to us by our parents, whether it was given to us by our grandparents, whether it was given to us by the Bible, whether we kind of came up with our own code of ethics as to what is the right and the wrong thing to do, we all in some way, shape, or form have an internal moral compass And we all have violated our own internal moral moral compass regardless of where that compass came from. And God saw that. And saw that this nation of Israel specifically had been given a moral compass through the law in the Old Testament and had over and over and over and over not simply violated God, not simply violated their moral compass, but had turned their back and outwardly and directly rebelled against God. And God saw that. And didn't hold it against him. Didn't hold it against the nation. But at the beginning of the Christmas story, sends his son. And this idea of adore, obviously is linked to the word adoration. If you look it up in the dictionary, adore, one of the words that's used to describe it is to show a tremendous amount of reverence. Or to worship someone or something. To adore isn't simply to find fascinating. To adore isn't to simply have a normal level of respect. But to adore is to worship, is to fall down, is to acknowledge that there is something extraordinary going on here. And so the song that's leading our entire series this morning, and over the next couple weeks, is based around this idea That Jesus is the only thing worth worshiping. Jesus is the only thing worth our adoration. Jesus is the only being worth revolving our lives around. Because here's the reality. Whether you're in here, you're a Christian, you've been to church a thousand times or a hundred times, or this is your first time in the door... In fact, if you're not sure that God exists, you're on the periphery, you're skeptical, there's, a bunch of, uh, there's tons of thoughts that go around when you think about God and you think about church. Here, here's the reality. Regardless of what you believe, all of us adore something. All of us worship something. For all of us, there is something central to our lives which all of our lives revolve around. And it's different for all of us, but we all have that commonality. For many of us, it's that we, we, we adore comfort. For many of us, we adore success. For many of us, we adore family. In fact, for many of us, if we're being honest, it's not even a bad thing that we adore. But we all adore something. And so this morning what I want to talk about is specific to, I think, what is the culture that we live in, the culture of the South, which is essentially to say this, I respect Jesus, but I don't adore Jesus. I respect Jesus, but I don't worship Jesus. I respect Jesus. I have a, a basic level of deference to Jesus and to the deity of God. But I don't know that I would say that I full on worship him. Now, 
to get us kind of going this morning, we're going to read a letter from Paul. We're going to start in, in, in the book of Romans, chapter 11. Now, if, if you're familiar with the Bible, then you probably know this, but if you're not, this might be new information. In Romans, um, Romans is one of the, the deeper um, books that probably, by saying deeper, I mean the deepest book that's in the Bible. The only Bible book that kind of rivals this in terms of depth is Revelation, and it's really not that much deeper, it's just that much more difficult to understand than Romans. So, in Romans chapters really 1 through 11, through the end of 11, um, Paul is laying out this incredible theological framework, uh, just extraordinary depth, highly debated in points, I mean, sometimes really difficult to understand what exactly does he mean as he's writing these words. And then in chapter 11 and verse 33, Paul basically writes what's called the doxology. And the doxology is a summary of what just happened. In other words, Paul is going to say, here is my summary of the first 11 chapters. And in chapter 12, he begins to turn a corner and say, now this is the beginning of the application. In other words, this view of God... This view of God, that God is in fact creator, that God is in fact the savior, that God, that Jesus is in fact the savior of the world. Here is beginning to be the application in chapter 12, verse 1. But we're going to start in verse 33 because I want to give you the summary of what Paul has to say of the first 11 chapters. He says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how unscrutable his, his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him that he might be repaid? In other words, Paul wants to kind of pause and say, before we go on to this application, let's just come to the communal realization that God is God. That God is bigger. That God is stronger. That God is smarter. That God has never had a counselor. God has never been at the point where he needed my counsel. God has never been at the point where he needed me to give to him. Especially to give to him that that he should repay me. Because he's God. And he's bigger. And he's stronger. And he's smarter. And he's wiser than I am. He's more holy than I am. He's more pure than I am. Because he is God and I am not. He summarizes it in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. In other words, everything came from God. Everything is going through God. There is not anything that happens that God does not know about. And everything is going back to him and is for his glory. To him be glory forever. Amen. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, as he turns the corner in application. And so I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, the way I memorized this verse when I went to you know, FCA camp when I was a youngster, was therefore in view of God's mercy. In other words, therefore in light of all of that, in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that God had mercy on me, in view of the fact that God saw me, that God sent his only son to die for me, in view of the fact that God is holy and on my best day, I am extraordinarily unholy. And because of his holiness and my unholiness, there is an inseparable gap between our relationship. 
there is no way for me to earn my way into God's good graces. You see, this is why chapter 11, verse 33 through 35 is so important. Because oftentimes, we feel like perhaps we can earn our way into God's good graces. I can good person my way into God's good graces. I can, you know, hold some things that I think God would appreciate as high. I you know, would prioritize family. I would prioritize charity. I would prioritize others in my life. And I will do some good things that perhaps will get me to God. In verse 11, chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, he is beyond us. He is way more holy, way more pure than you or I. And we can't good ourselves into God's good graces because he is far, far, far too good. And in view of the fact that God saw that and didn't hold that against us, but sent his son into the world... To die. Sin is done into the world to, to, to do some incredible teachings, to perform some just extraordinary miracles, to do what basically no one thought he was going to do, which was to die, because no one thought God was going to die. That just didn't even make sense. But then to come back from the grave so that you and I, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done in life, could have access and could have a right relationship with your Heavenly Father, not by earning your way, but by simply professing and acknowledging and accepting the fact that God has done something on our behalf when He sent His Son into the world to die for our sins, and that it's simply by the realization, simply by faith in that, that I now have a relationship and a right standing with him. So he says, come on. In view of that, in view of that, when you come to that realization, which many of us have come to, which many of us agree with, which many of us would say, yeah, yeah, I understand the confines. I understand the dynamic of that relationship. He says, okay, so when you understand that, here's what is natural to happen. Here's what is, is what the natural ebb and flow of that realization comes to. He says, to present your bodies, in view of God's mercies, in view of what God has done, you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, when we come to that realization, it naturally transforms us. That our bodies are saying, God, whatever you want, whenever you want. My life is a blank check. You just write whatever you want on it. Wherever you want it to go, whatever you want it to do, however much you would require of me, God, it's like my life doesn't exist. Now, that's a very difficult thing to say. Because, come on, when you realize this, you realize that there's nothing else that your life could be patterned after that would be more valuable than this. And so you would present, I would present, we would present our bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that word worship is so important because you could easily translate that. That is your spiritual act of adoration. That is your spiritual act of what happens when you adore God. When you get to the point where you are convinced that God sent his one and only son to die for me. That I was inseparably 
disconnected from God until God sent his one and only son into the world. It is natural for me to decide that that is the only thing worth living for. And so my response to my adoration and my worship towards God is to present my life back to him. And what's interesting is in chapter 12, verse 2, he defines a little bit more the application of that. Because I think what most of us would say is like, man, that sounds fantastic. But what does that even mean? That sounds fantastic. But let me come on. I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, and I'm going to have to go to work. I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, and I'm going to have to take care of my kids. I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, and I'm going to have to study for exams. I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, and I'm still going to have to deal with my boss. I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, and I'm still going to have to go through what I'm going to have to go through. And I could say, yeah, blank check. I could say all this, and I could say all that. But come on. What does that even look like? So he says, okay, chapter 12, verse 2. So do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Adoration leads to transformation. Adoration leads to transformation. As you adore God, as you come to the realization that Jesus is in fact Lord and Savior, your life becomes transformed. It says by the renewing of your mind. In other words, once you come to the reasonable conclusion, once you come to the decent conclusion, once your mind becomes wrapped around this idea that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the only thing worth glorifying with our lives, your life becomes transformed to be like Jesus. Now let me tell you why I think that is so extraordinarily important for us this morning. Because if we're being honest, most of us want to respect Jesus. But very few of us want to be transformed by Jesus. Most of us want to have this little slice of Jesus. Most of us want to have just enough Jesus to make us feel good about ourselves and to make us feel like God would feel good about us. We want to let him into our life enough to the point where God would feel good about us. We feel good about God. We could go home. We join hands and we pray. But true adoration, true worship of God leads to true and earnest and honest transformation. So let me ask this question. Let me ask kind of a probing, pressing question. Has your life Has your life been transformed by your relationship with God? Has your life been transformed by your relationship with God? Has your life, has the way that you relate to your friends, has the way that you relate to your co-workers, has the way that you relate to your kids, has the way that you relate to your parents changed? Have you become a more loving person? Have you become a more selfless person? Have you become a more generous person? Have you come to the deep realization that God so loved me, how could I not love other people? Has there been transformation, gospel-centered, honest transformation in your life? Because if not, perhaps you have gotten to the point where you have a respect for God, you have a basic deferential treatment towards God, but you truly do not adore and worship God. And if we're being honest, by the way, if you're in here, you're not a Christian, you're kind of checking this whole thing out, not really sure where you do this, 
Isn't this what drives you nuts about the church? Isn't this what drives you nuts about, about Christians? Is that you see Christians who show deference towards God, but do not truly live a transformed life. You see Christians who over and over and over show respect towards God. And let me, let me, just, let me just give you an example. Respect towards God says, let me take my hat off when I pray. Transformation towards God says, I'm going to do what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, that I'm going to go in my room, close my door, go in my closet, and pray to my heavenly Father who is unseen. That's transformation. Not simply saying, okay, let's bow our head and take off our hats. Come on. If you're here, you're not part of the church, you're trying to, you know, again, you're investigating, you're skeptical, I completely understand. And in fact, here, here's the reality. If I had experienced what you had experienced through other Christians, there's a good chance I would feel and think the exact same thing that you do. Because we sing, oh come, let us adore him. Oh come, let us worship him. Well, come, let us show an extraordinary amount of gratitude. Let us come show an extraordinary amount of just bowing ourselves down to him. And we sing those verses and those words in churches. But we live as if it's simply a basic level of respect. In fact, if you're in here and you're a Christian, um, let's say you have started following Jesus. Let's say there is a level of transformation in your life. Let me tell you the trap that I fall into personally. I know that who I was is not who I am. I know that there has been a level of transformation in my life. But if I'm being honest... There are still areas of my life that I don't want God to transform. There are still areas of my life that I don't want to lay down, that I don't want to be a living sacrifice. I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to give everything to God when it comes to relationships, perhaps. I want to be a living sacrifice to God when it comes to what is the future of the church. Let me tell you, one of the things that's difficult for me is I don't want it to be a sacrifice to God. I don't want it to be a blank check to God whether the meat company I run is successful or not. I want that to not be a blank check. I want that to be a well-filled out check, you know? I want it to be profitable. I want it to help my family. I want it to make sure that my wife and my kid and my and the future kids are taken care of. I want to make sure it makes enough that I can adequately, you know, you know, save and we can have retirement. And I want to make sure that we have health insurance, obviously. And I want to make sure that we have, you know, life insurance and, and really kind of any kind of insurance that I can have, I kind of want because just in case anything happens. That's what I want. And those things aren't bad. But those are things that I have a tendency to hold on to as a Christian who has had some type of a gospel transformation in my life that I still look at and say, okay, there's places in my life where I don't adore God, that I don't want transformation from God, that I don't want to let go of. Because at the end of the day, I don't know if I can trust God in that area. You see, for many of us, again, we have a respect for God. We have a basic level of trust in God. We have something we want to take off our hat and we want to come sit in rows. But let me just ask. When we sing that song, when you sing that song, when you think about that song, oh, come let us adore him. 
The idea when, they, when, when, when the wise men, when the shepherds, when everybody came to see the baby Jesus was something so extraordinary happened. This is going to change the rest of history. That God has done something. That God has sent the Messiah. The one that prophet after prophet after prophet had talked about. That God has done something. God is not holding our sins against us, but has sent his one and only son into the world to forgive us of all our sins. And that deserves more than our respect. That deserves our entire lives. Because there is nothing more valuable. There is nothing more significant than that. My comfort, my success, my job, my family. There is nothing more significant than that and the reality is for many of us god has called us to be extremely diligent in those areas that's not a call to abandon any kind of responsibility in your life that's a call to the realization that god has called me to use those things to glorify him in my life that god has called me to say god whatever you want to do however you want to further your gospel god i am wide open to it in every single area of my life my life is wide open to you. Because as Paul would say, this is your spiritual, or this is your reasonable act of worship. Let me, let me end with this. How much different would a church look that every single person woke up every single morning in their entire lives, our entire lives, were worship, were adoration, where a living sacrifice was transformed by God. My guess is if we lived that out, people would think so much differently about the church. If you're in here, you're skeptical. You would think so much differently about the church. You would think so much differently about God You would think so much differently about Jesus because you would see a group of people who there is no place that God has not invaded. And you might never agree, but you would at least agree that we actually believe. And that would change perhaps what you would think of the church. So come on. You're in here, you're a Christian. You're in here and you claim and you understand and conceptually you agree with the dynamic of the relationship that God has sent his one and only son to bridge the gap that we can't bridge. Is there transformation in your life? Has it gone from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge where you would give anything for God? And if you are in here and you've been a Christian for a while, are there still places in your life? In fact, I wouldn't even say are there. That kind of makes it seem like, oh, maybe there are, maybe they're not. No, there, let me just you know, be pointed. There are places in your life. What are they? Because we all have them. What are the places in your life that we resist transformation? Because we want some of Jesus but sometimes not all of Jesus. We want to respect God, but we don't want to adore and worship God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would transform us into a church, into a group, as each one of us as individuals comes to the realization, comes to the agreement, comes to the decision, God, that you are the only thing we're following. God, 
that this story is true. This relationship is true. That you sent your son into the world to die for us. And as a, re- as a response to that, God, we give our entire lives to you. God, for anybody in here who their life, the truth of their life, is that there really hasn't been transformation. God, you would help to convince them more and more. You would help them to understand more and more the fact that you sent your son to die for us. And there is nothing worth living for more than that. And God, I pray and I ask for those of us who there has been some sense of transformation in those places and those areas of life that are still very difficult to let go of, you would help us to let go of and be transformed by you, our Heavenly Father. And God, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray that this would define your church. This would define your followers. That there is no place, there is no area There is no part of our lives that we wouldn't willingly surrender to you. You just say when and where and what. And God, I pray that that level of abandonment, of a living sacrifice, of transformation would perhaps be an inspiration, would perhaps be a light to a world that has seen lots of Christians who came and weren't lights, weren't transformed. So God, would you transform us? Would you create inside of us a transformed, a renewed mind and a renewed heart that we could stand before you and we would look at you and other people would see you working through us and turn and praise you, our heavenly Father. God, would you please turn us into that type of a community that lives with ultimate abandon and transformation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.